Hey, Oasis Church Chicago, Pastor JP here. Hey, we're so glad that you're joining with us on our podcast today. I pray today that this message stirs your faith, that it builds you up, that it draws you closer to the Father's heart, and ultimately that you just feel the embrace of heaven. We would love to stay connected with you and you to stay connected with us. So please feel free to check us out on our website, oasischurchchicago.com, or download our app, Oasis Church Chicago. Also, you can be sure to join with us on our live stream on our YouTube page every Wednesday night and Sunday morning. Now here's today's message. Thank you very much. It's a joy to be here. And uh, I have uh, a couple things before I get into the message. Uh, the first is just a, a word uh, for somebody here. And it's don't pull the trigger. It's just been sitting me all morning. I don't mean, you know, uh, don't shoot me because the preaching's bad and you've given something into the offering and you're not satisfied with what you got out of it. Um, it's like you're under a lot of pressure to make a decision, and it's going to be a bad decision. And if that speaks to you this morning, uh, don't do it. Uh, so what are you supposed to do? You go talk to somebody and say, help me, because I'm under a lot of pressure, and I feel compelled to make a decision. And, and if that speaks to you, then... It's possible there might even be more than one person. But if that speaks to you, then don't leave this morning without making an appointment to come and talk to J.P., Ruben, or somebody here that uh, will be able to help you. The other thing is, some of you are here, you've come to Chicago to study at college or university, and some of you, you know, none of you or very few of you um, came with the intention of staying, but some of you... God is going to call to stay. And uh, when I uh, started a church in uh, Great Britain in 19... Oh, it was a long time ago anyway. <laughs> I think about it, but um, uh, I don't know how I can still be, you know, 42 and started a church 42 years ago or something. But anyway, um, we started that church, or I started that church with a group of university students they were all 18 to 22 years old. The elders were 22. Um, and uh, none of them, it was a very, very depressed area. And none of them came from that area. But they chose to take a risk and stay in an area that had very few economic opportunities. Um, and God created a church that has planted churches in different countries, and I mean, thousands of people have been impacted uh, to this day. Uh, it's extraordinary what the Lord has done. God has raised up leaders. God raised up a young man. One of our young men became a general in the British Army. And, you know, God... Uh, God... He can do what he wants, can't he? And he doesn't necessarily operate according to what you want at all. I mean, my poor wife had to marry me. <laughs> I had a prophetic word. <laughs> it's true. I was so desperate that it was the only way that I could get a wife. Of course, I didn't tell her it was a prophetic word, but as soon as I asked her out to dinner, she said, oh, dear God, 
he's had a word from the Lord that, I, that he's to marry me and I'm, I'm done, you know? And, uh, and she's faithfully followed me, uh, left her country, left her home, left everything. And God calls us to places that we don't necessarily want to go. So I'm just saying, I'm not saying to everybody here, but I am saying there are some young people here who have come to this place to study, uh, and God is going to call you to stay, whether you like it or not. You know, when I, God called me to England, when I went there, I was miserable for two years. It rained, it was overcast, it was never, when they had a heat wave, it was like 68 degrees, and... Um, but, I, but God had called me. And in the end, when, when I eventually left, which I wasn't planning to do, um, but when I left, I missed it. So anyway, if any of those things speak to any of you, then consider them uh, before the Lord, please. Now, I want to talk this morning uh, from Mark chapter 19, verses 14 to 29, and I've, I've left my... Can someone loan me a Bible because I've left my phone again? Chapter 9. There, there is no such thing as Mark 19. You should know that. You're the pastor here. You said 19. You said 19. I said 19? You said 19. That's a deception, Your no, Honor. No, I'm not. I never said it. You said this guy. Honestly, you know. The guy invites you to speak, and then he says all sorts of things that aren't true. <laughs> and when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and the scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered, teacher, I brought my son to you. He's a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they weren't able. And he answered, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, it convulsed the boy. He fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. It's often cast him into fire and, and water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. And here's the most encouraging verse in the whole Bible. Are you ready for it? Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. I love this verse. I'll explain why. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. The boy was like a corpse. Most of them said he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he entered the house, the disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And notice they didn't ask him publicly. <laughs> it was embarrassing. They asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this, he said, because you're idiots. No, he was a little bit, <laughs> a little bit kinder. He said, this kind cannot be 
driven out by anything but prayer. Now, this passage tells a story of a desperate father. He brings his demonized son to Jesus for deliverance. Jesus wasn't there. Where was he? He was up on the Mount of Transfiguration with Peter, James, and John. And so, failing to find Jesus, the man prevails upon the remaining disciples to help. Their efforts come to nothing. And as Jesus comes down the mountain, the man meets him with his desperate plea. And the story that unfolds tells the encounter of this man and his son with Jesus. Now, Jesus is the healer. The boy is the one who's healed, but the father is really the central character in the story. And as we read, he asked Jesus to help if he could. Imagine asking the Son of God to help if he could. And Jesus rebukes him and says, all things are possible for one who believes. And the man in his desperation cries out, I believe, help my unbelief. Jesus rebukes the spirit and the boy is set free. Now, as I said, I think this what this man says here is one of the most encouraging statements in the whole Bible. Is there any of us that cannot identify with his cry? And, you know, I, I can certainly identify. I, I, Elaine and I well remember the, the day when our daughter Sarah came down the stairs uh, after a phone call, collapsed into her arms, it was her doctor telling her she had cancer. That's not what uh, any father or mother wants to hear. And by the grace of God, she came through all of that and is cancer-free and so on. But it was a very tough situation. And God did extraordinary, absolutely extraordinary things on her life as a result of that. But uh, in that moment, it was, I believe, help my unbelief. Somehow, we just had to say, well, God will help us through this, even though we don't know how that's going to happen. Now, the faith movement has taught us that it's our responsibility. Maybe you have never come across that, but for those of you that have, there's a movement within the church, parts of the church, that says, basically, it's my responsibility to manufacture certainty. If I want to see God do something in my life, it's up to me believing as hard as I can. And if I believe as hard as I can, then I can ask God for anything I want, and God's obligated to provide me with it. It's all up to me. But the catch is, if, uh, if I haven't got that certainty, nothing is going to happen. And then my guilty conscience reinforces my problem because if God doesn't answer my prayers and I don't get what I want, whether it's a financial thing, a relationship issue, a physical healing, or whatever it is, if God doesn't answer my prayers, even though I've cried out to him and asked him, then obviously there's sin in my life. There's something wrong with me. Now, if you've ever felt like that, that you've prayed and God hasn't answered your prayers and therefore there must be something wrong with you, this story is for you. But it's important to clarify one thing from the get-go, which is this about this man, that his unbelief was not directed to 
toward who Jesus was. His unbelief was directed toward what Jesus could do. So you're okay in the house this morning if you believe who Jesus is, but you're a little uncertain about what he can do in your life. Now, maybe I'm the only one here that can confess to not having absolute certainty that Jesus is going to answer all my prayers. The rest of you are in perfect faith this morning. You always have your prayers answered. You haven't got a problem, in which case you can just listen to my confession up here. But I believe and know who Jesus is as certain as I know anything in my life. But that still doesn't mean that when I pray and ask God for something that I'm absolutely certain that I know what Jesus is going to do. So Hebrews chapter 11 says, without faith it's impossible to please God. That means that I know who Jesus is. That's my assurance of faith. If I don't really know who Jesus is, then I've got a problem. But if I know who Jesus is, then, but my struggle is what Jesus may do, then this story will bring great hope and encouragement to you. Uh, and here's why. In spite of the fact that the desperate father asked Jesus to help his unbelief, there are four things in this man's heart which testify to the fact that his faith was genuine even though he had doubts. So if you are a person of faith here this morning and yet you also have doubts, which I suspect covers all of us, then uh, what I'm gonna say hopefully will be a help to you. So here are the things I think that were there in this man's heart that testify to the genuineness of his faith. And we know his faith is genuine because Jesus answered his prayer in the end. And so first of all, he came in desperation. He was desperate for God. The story doesn't tell us how long he'd waited for Jesus, but he'd waited for a while. The dictionary describes desperate this way, as the Oxford Dictionary, the proper one. <laughs> the dictionary describes desperate this way, reckless from despair, violent, lawless, staking everything on a small chance. I want to be desperate for God that way. Even if I'm reckless from despair, your despair does not disqualify you. It may qualify you if it gives birth to a recklessness in seeking God. His faith was based on the fact he'd staked everything on Christ. Nobody else would do. See, our faith is weak because complacency rules our agenda. We put our faith in all sorts of things other than Christ. We put our faith in our employer, his ability to write our paycheck. We put our faith in our doctor. We put our faith in, uh, you know, friends, family around us. And it's not that any of those are wrong. It's just that 
it becomes easy to rely on all those things until the point when all those things do not meet your need, such as when your daughter comes down the stairs and says, I've got cancer. So complacency enters in. We don't have, James says, because we don't ask. We're not desperate for God. Why is it that we wait until every other option fails before we go to the Lord? So Jesus measured the strength of this man's faith, not by the doubts that he still had in his mind. He said, I, I believe, help my unbelief. But he measured the strength of his, of his faith, not by the doubts that were still there, but by his desperation to stake everything on Christ. The disciples had failed, but his desperation drove him to Jesus. He was desperate. Like the widow in Luke chapter 18, who uh, had nothing going for her. She had only one thing. She was persistent. And in the end, that's all she needed. This man was desperate, and that's what got him through in the end. So number one, he came in desperation. Number two, he came in worship. If you read the parallel account of this story in the 17th chapter of Matthew, the first thing that the man did on seeing Jesus was he knelt down. He fell at his feet. He, he came. He may not have understood fully who Jesus was because Jesus is still in the middle of his ministry. He didn't understand as we understand today, the fullness of all of that, but he understood enough to fall at his feet and worship him. So he came in worship. In fact, Matthew says he called him Lord. Now, it's interesting because his situation was desperate, but he came to Jesus not in anger, not in bitterness, but in worship. Worship is not just the singing of choruses and songs. It's the laying down of your life before God. Paul tells us that to present yourselves as a sacrifice, living holy and acceptable to God, Romans 12, verse 1, which is your, and it's translated, spiritual or reasonable worship. But the Greek actually means this is worship properly understood. So to present yourselves as a living sacrifice from Monday to Saturday, that's the real meaning of worship. So when you come into a corporate gathering on Sunday morning and begin to sing and join together in corporate worship and so on, that you have already come through the worship of your life whether you're working a job, whether you're raising kids at home, whether you're studying, whatever you're doing, you're worshiping minute by minute and day by day. And when a group of people who live like that from Monday to Saturday come together on Sunday and the guitars and whatever comes out, then it becomes powerful. The Holy Spirit comes because it's a bunch of worshipers have entered the room. I met somebody once who had had the great... Um, experience of studying under C.S. Lewis at Oxford University. And what he said was this. He said, you had to be in place uh, at the time the lecture was due to begin because Lewis began to lecture in the hallway outside. 
And if you were standing in the hallway, C.S. Lewis would start his lecture walking down the hall, and he already was a few sentences in when he walked into the room. That's just what he did. And you've got to begin your worship in the hall. The hall is Monday to Saturday. So when you walk into this physical building on Sunday morning, you have long since begun your worship. And then the Holy Spirit begins to move. So this man, I mean, Jesus hasn't begun a service or anything. Jesus has just come down off the mountain, but the man breaks in and falls down in worship. That's the first thing he does. He presents his life before Jesus. Being a worshiper means that no matter how difficult things are, no matter what's going on, our emotions may be up and down like a yo-yo, our mind is all over the place, we still fall down at his feet and call him Lord. So number one, he came in desperation. Number two, he came in worship. Number three, he came in honesty. Before, not only before Jesus, but before everybody else, he admitted his doubts and fears. Now, I don't know about you, but I think that honesty is a sign of genuine relationship. So if I have a problem with someone, I'm going to try to express it and put it on the table if I want to maintain a real friendship with them. Now, it doesn't mean that you walk up to somebody that you've never met and say, well, by the way, you know, your deodorant isn't working this morning, something like that. That's all what I'm saying. But if you were a really good friend of somebody, you know, you might actually say that in love. <laughs> by the way, JP, no, it's all right. <laughs> so uh, honesty is actually a sign of genuine relationship. So I think the man could be honest with Jesus because he trusted Jesus. It, he ex exposed himself. He put himself in a very vulnerable position. You, you only do that with someone because you trust the person. And we'll get to that in a minute. But Jesus, but the man knew, I think, that his honesty would not lead to Jesus rejecting him. He might well have hung around Jesus' ministry. Maybe he'd seen that prostitute that came and poured ointment on Jesus' feet and how Jesus didn't reject her. Maybe he'd seen Jesus calling Zacchaeus out of the tree and then going to lunch with all of these tax collectors and sinners. Maybe he'd seen the lady with the issue of blood who is absolutely should not even have been in a crowd, let alone touching one of the most prominent rabbis in the country, touching him physically with her bleeding, and yet finding out that Jesus uh, made her, instead of making Jesus unclean, Jesus made her clean. But maybe he'd witnessed those kind of things. And so he knew he could come to Jesus. Let me encourage you this morning, come to Jesus in honesty. You know, you angry at God this morning? Maybe you are. Well, why don't you just be honest about it? God knows anyway. Why hide it? Um, David didn't have a problem in hiding it. How long, oh Lord, is this going, going to go on? How long are you going to do this to me? You know, and when I get really frustrated, of course, frustration is just low-grade anger. When I get frustrated, I go to God. You know, a psychologist friend of mine, 
they're dangerous people to hang around, but we're sitting in, sitting in my living room and discussing an issue. And he said, you know, Dave, I think you have an anger issue. And I said, no, I don't. And he said, you know, I really do think you have an anger issue. I said, I do not. <laughs> and he just sat there smiling at me. I said, oh, maybe I do. Well, I'm not angry, I'm frustrated. He said, well, you know, frustration is low-grade anger. Oh, gee. <laughs> I said, okay, this interview is over. <laughs> I came to talk about other people's problems, not mine. If you ever struggle with anger and depression, he wrote an incredible book. I'll recommend it to you after the service is over. Um, but anyway, um, uh, he, came in, uh, he came in a place of honesty. He, he, he knew that it was better to say, I have unbelief, but I'm, I'm, I'm coming to you anyway. He trusted Jesus wouldn't reject him. So he came in desperation. He came in worship, and he came in honesty. And I don't think I'm reading those things into the text. I think they're all there. And lastly, he came in trust. And here is an interesting point, because his trust in Jesus overcame his disappointment with people. He didn't walk away from Jesus because the church had failed him. The disciples, whatever they did, uh, they didn't, couldn't get the job done. How often do people walk away from the Lord because some Christian or some church has failed them? The number of times I hear that story, they had a bad experience at church. So you just put everything right by walking away from Jesus. Well, if you're looking for the perfect church, I've got news for you. The minute you walk in the door, you'll ruin it. <laughs> so look at yourself in the mirror a little bit. Church is imperfect, but it's better than shooting yourself in the foot and leaving. So that's a tragedy, but this man had been disappointed by Jesus' representatives. Church had failed him, but his faith was strong enough to withstand disillusionment with people and keep his eyes on Jesus, not on Jesus' representatives. And that's so important for all of us. I remember a lady who was an university staff worker when I came uh, to Christ at University of Toronto, and she made the statement in a meeting, every time I put a man on a pedestal, he falls off. And I've learned that Jesus is the only one that deserves to be on a pedestal. We get disillusioned because we believe in illusion. We believe in illusion that uh, a church leader or elder or what pastor or whatever is the solution to all my problems. That's an illusion, Right? If you're disillusioned about that, it's your own fault for believing the illusion. Sorry, that wasn't very seeker sensitive. But um, we just got to keep our eyes on Jesus. And then um, we begin to see his representatives in maybe a more accurate way. So uh, 
in spite of this situation, this guy stayed in church because he come to church for the right reason, which was to meet with Jesus Christ. So if you come here this morning to meet with Jesus Christ, I guarantee you won't be disappointed because Jesus will never fail you. And in the process, you will be blessed by your interaction with God's imperfect representatives of whom you are one. So four things about this man. He came in desperation. He came in worship. He came in honesty. He came in trust. Now, can I suggest to you that these four things, desperation, worship, honesty, and trust, are actually the hallmarks of genuine biblical faith? Biblical faith, properly understood, is not an intensity or quantity or certainty of mental belief. That's not what biblical faith is. Biblical faith is the strength of personal relationship and trust in Jesus and our willingness to build our lives upon that relationship in spite of all the doubts that we have in our mind about what Jesus possibly can or cannot do in any given circumstance we're facing. True faith shows itself in the way we live. The Father obviously did have faith or belief of some sort in his mind, otherwise he wouldn't have come to Jesus at all, but the belief that he had in his mind was the product of something deeper in his heart. And what was in his heart was strong enough to drive him to Jesus in spite of all of his doubts. I hope that's encouraging to you this morning because I have doubts. And preachers that stand on a platform and say, well, I decreed this and I prophesied that and I this, that, and the next thing, you know, and it's so discouraging because you and I feel we're always falling short. But people that preach in that way are not being honest. So I rather, I rather say, you know, we've had moments of struggle. Elaine and I have moments of struggle. And you have eight children, you're insane enough to do that. You're going to have struggle. Someone said, well, it's all right. When they're 18, you stop worrying about it. That's when you start worrying about them. <laughs> you all understand one day. <laughs> anyway, um, but somehow in our hearts, our trust in Jesus is as strong or stronger than it's ever been, in spite of all we've gone through. And the end of the story here um, provides us with a really important detail. Because when the disciples came to Jesus saying, why couldn't we cast the demon out? Jesus said it comes out only by prayer. And uh, what he's reminding them is faith is not born out of positive thinking. It's not born out of what we think we can do or how much we believe or how much positive confession or statements we're making. No, true faith comes out of a place of communion with Jesus. My wife always says, when she gets really desperate, she'll get in the car and she'll go out and drive somewhere and start screaming at God. That is an expression of personal faith. Do you understand what I'm saying? That's an expression of personal faith. 
It's not just, well, we have a crisis in our life, you know, our finances are about to fall through the floor and all the rest of it, and we're going to say in the name of Jesus, I speak to this blah de blah and now I feel better. No. You go out and say, God, I'm desperate. That's desperation. But God, I come to worship you. You are God. That's worship. Lord, I'm honest. I'm, in, I'm, I'm, in a, I'm at the end of my tether over this. I don't know what I'm going to do. It's honesty. But I trust you. That's trust. That's faith. And, and that's where God begins to do something. Because his power is only ever manifest in one place, our weakness. When you think you're strong, when you think you're all that in a bucket of chicken, God won't do much for you. But when you know you're nothing and nobody, then Jesus will show up and do something and he'll get the glory out of it. And so it's interesting that... Uh, the, that uh, when, when Matthew talks about this in his account, he, Jesus says uh, to the disciples, it's not only that they had a problem, not only because of their lack of prayer, but also because of their little faith. Now, just bear with me for a minute. And the next thing Jesus says, this is in Matthew's account, is if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, nothing will be impossible for you. And we're told that mustard seed is the smallest of all seeds. Now, Here's a problem. First of all, Jesus says, your problem is your small faith. And the very next sentence, he says, well, all you need is the tiniest amount of faith and nothing will be impossible for you. So Jesus was not in the habit of contradicting himself. So what we need to find out is what is the meaning of this word small faith? It's oligopistia in Greek. And what it means is not little faith. It's a poor quality of faith. So what Jesus is saying is that you can't do anything if you have a poor quality of faith. But all you have to have is the tiniest amount, the tiniest amount of real faith. When we pray for people at the end of church services, my wife slips this tiny, tiny, tiny little peppermint bomb into my hand. You know, so he shall slay them by the breath of his mouth. <laughs> we, we don't want that to happen. If we, people are out in the spirit, we don't want it big because too much garlic we had, you know, for breakfast or whatever. So there's a little peppermint bomb. It causes an explosion. Let me tell you, the, there's an anointing on it. And uh, you, can, you, can, you can smell it a mile away. It's just the tiniest, tiniest thing, but it does the job. So you may think, I don't have the great amount of faith, the titans of the faith like J.P. Trollio have. He just walks on water every day. I don't have that. You don't have to have it. All you need is that tiny, tiny little thing. But you do need to have a good quality of faith. What is a good quality of faith? It's faith that comes in desperation, in worship, in honesty and in trust, like this dad came in desperation. Worship, honesty, and trust. That's the good quality. 
You may feel every single thing in my mind is telling me that, not, that God is not able to help me in this, that my whole world is going to fall apart, uh, that not, it, it, it's going to, I'm facing calamity, and, and your mind is bombarding you with that to the point where you think God will never answer my prayer because I, I don't believe, I can't believe anything right now. But actually, if you still stick in there and come with, to Jesus, you've got everything you need. You don't need all the rest of it. All you need is the desperation that drives you to Jesus and says, I believe, help my unbelief. You've got the good quality of faith, even though you may only have the mustard seed. Do you understand what I'm saying? Okay, you haven't fallen asleep yet. I, I am just about finished, so that's the good news. So we could paraphrase it this way. The disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why couldn't we cast it out? Jesus replied, because you have such a poor quality of faith. Your faith is weak. But if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, even if, if, if it is of good quality, even though it's small, even though your emotions are up and down, even though your mind is all over the place, if you come like that, nothing will be impossible for you. We have prayed for people. Uh, and seeing miracles happen. A man, two or three weeks ago, a church in Michigan came up. He was a chiropractor. And, uh, and he's hobbling like this, and he can hardly move his knee. And full of compassion, I said, physician, heal thyself. <laughs> I did. <laughs> I did actually say that. <laughs> then the Lord smote me with a light bowl of lightning. <laughs> anyway, and so one of the elders and me anointed him with oil and prayed for him. And I can't say that I had, you know, a, a great um, amount of faith or whatever. I did it because the word of God says, if anyone is among you, sit, let him come and let the elders of the church anoint and so on. And it's a command, right? It's a command. It's not an option. And so we prayed. And when I opened my eyes, he was shaking. The power of the Holy Spirit was upon him. He came from a Mennonite background. He never had this experience before. The power of God was on him, and he went home, and he went out and ran three or four miles. He did. And so he came back at church the next week. Um, I, I said, let's pray for people who have athletic injuries or joint problems. And I said, Dr. So-and-so is going to come up to the front because someone that was, uh, he gave his testimony, someone who has been healed has Lots of, you know, they're ready to go to pray for the next person. So if God's blessed you, you should be giving it away. And he prayed hands on somebody and they got healed. It's amazing. And so that kind of thing just happens. And, you know, but I didn't have any particular emotion or feeling or anything. I prayed out of obedience and out of compassion. And God showed up and did something. Real faith always draws us back to our relationship with the Lord. As we cast ourselves upon the Lord, as we seek to maintain our relationship with him, we can be like Peter. And I, I will close with this, I promise. But that day in the boat, when all the guys were in the boat and, and Jesus comes walking on the water, and you know why Jesus walked on the water? Because in the book of Revelation, it 
pictures the sea as being the dwelling place of evil. It goes back to the idea of the Red Sea and the dragon dwelling in the sea, and it's in Isaiah and Jeremiah as well as in the story in Exodus. That, and in the book of Revelation, the beast arises out of the sea. But in Revelation chapter 4, the sea is calmed. It's as crystal. You can walk on it because the dwelling place of evil has vaporized. It doesn't exist anymore. And that's why Jesus walked on the water. He didn't do it just because it was the quickest way to get from one side to the other. It was a prophetic sign that he had come to destroy the powers of hell. And when he invited Peter into the adventure with him, Peter being the chief of the guys, right? Uh, Jesus was inviting his entire church to walk with him in a battle to destroy the powers of darkness so that we could walk on water together. That's why that's so important, story, a story. But put yourself in Peter's position. He got out of the boat, but it says when he got his eyes off Jesus and began to look at the waves, he began to sink. But Jesus reached out his hand and grabbed him because Jesus saw his good quality of faith. He only had a mustard seed, but his faith was strong because he had his eyes on Jesus and he wanted to join with Jesus in this great adventure. And it's a good picture, isn't it, for the Christian life for most of us, is, is we're always having to step out of the boat. And faith is about doing, we can do what's possible. Faith is about doing what's impossible. What we, and what's impossible is what you and I can't do. And God, wherever you are at this morning, God is inviting you to step out of the boat, out of your area of human security and into the area of his authority, where in our weakness, his strength is made perfect. All we need, this story shows us, is a small amount of faith. But if that faith is rooted in a genuine relationship with Jesus, any one of us can do the impossible. What is the impossible? It may be a miracle. Or maybe it's just the ability to persevere in an incredibly difficult situation and remain faithful, to keep on trusting God through the darkness until the light dawns. We're at a difficult uh, moment in situations we're facing and a, a friend of ours in England sent a, Elaine a video. And uh, the video was of the longest tunnel that goes through the Alps. And it was the weirdest thing. It was just darkness. And she said, you have to watch the whole thing. And the video goes on for, I don't know, five or 10 minutes. It's just darkness. And then suddenly a pinprick of light appears and Elaine bursts into tears because there's light at the end of every tunnel. And if that's an encouragement to you this morning, then let it be an encouragement. Keep on trusting God till the light dawns. The desperate father should be encouragement to all of us. You don't have to be a superhero of faith. You just have to be faithful. You know what? That's possible for every single person in this room this morning. Let's stand together.
Now I'm asking the Holy Spirit to begin speaking to you, particularly if this message, this scripture has touched your heart this morning. Allow the Holy Spirit to birth true faith in you. Spirit, we invite you to speak to us. Speak to those seemingly impossible circumstances, to those challenges, to the fears. Courageous, Lord, to be desperate for you. Jesus, I am, so, I am so very, very grateful you don't wait until I've got everything together before you show up for me. Lord, I, I thank you for every time in my life that I've been in a mess and you've shown up as your grace. And I pray for my brothers and sisters here this morning that you'd show up for them. I know you will, Lord. I just pray that you'd break off every lie of the enemy that somehow we're not worthy enough. Somehow we have to have everything together before we can even come and ask you to do anything. Lord, I pray that that those of us that feel we can't pray for the impossible, that you would just allow us to pray for it anyway, if that's what we feel we need. Help us to get out of the boat, Lord. Trust you more. I just invite you to respond. It doesn't matter how you respond. As long as you respond in your heart, you might want to respond. I'm going to hand it over to pastor in a moment, but you might want to respond by coming and asking someone to pray for you. You might want to respond just by turning to the person beside you and say, can you pray with me? Uh, you might want to respond just by sitting for a few moments in your chair and dealing with God and allowing, allow him to deal with you or maybe even make an appointment, come and have coffee with somebody and talk to them about it. But just respond, do something, do something. Reach out to God because he surely will reach out to you. I do feel that God actually wants to multiply this morning. And, you know, the same sort of principle is in the story of the little boy who brought the fish to Jesus. You know, he brought what he had, and Jesus did the multiplying. And, you know, whatever place you feel that you are at in your faith, what little seed you've got... I really do believe that God wants us to bring it and to ask Him to multiply it. Because, you know, um, He wants us to grow in faith. Like, He doesn't want us to stay the same. You know, He, so I just feel, you know, if it's an area, say, like, I can only trust the Lord a little bit, I feel like I have a lot of mistrust, then bring 
the little bit of trust that you have and let's pray and let's ask God to multiply his trust in your life. You know, maybe it's to do with finances. Maybe it's a relationship. I'm cautious. You know, I kind of feel God is calling me into this relationship, but, you know, I just, I've got more uncertainty than I have certainty. Then bring it to the Lord because, you know, if he's in it, he will multiply by his spirit. And so bring your fish, you know, bring your mustard seed and let's, let's trust, let's believe God for him to bring about multiplication. Amen.